0: Well, it seems to me that we live in very noisy and distracted times. I don't know about you, but I have just been stunned. Maybe the word is amazed at the Pokemon Go games. (laughs) Now, I have to say that I'm not into this, at least right now. Maybe many of you are. I think many of you are on the plaza, what I hear. Uh, But it's amazing to me to, to observe what's going on. Have you you followed the stats about this? Think about this for a moment. This mobile game, this phone game, has gotten more daily users than Twitter in the last week. People are spending more time on Pokemon Go than on Facebook. That's what the data tells us. And if you're an investor in a rather bleak investment horizon (laughs) or environment, you should own a little stock in Nintendo. Because in the last week, a little over a week, Nintendo stock, if you've noticed, I don't have any in that, I wish I did, has gone up 70%, 70%. Now, Pokemon Go has captured our culture by storm. And it also has led many participants into very dangerous places as they follow their little monsters on their phone. Have you followed some of the stuff that's going on? I uh, watched an interview with a young lady who in following her Pokemon Go monsters crossed the road and got hit by a car. Thankfully, she didn't die. And then there are two guys in California that fell off a cliff this week as they looked at their phone and forgot where they were. This is the Pokemon Go world we live in. And in this information age, you know, there's a lot of good things that come with it, right? I mean, but the information Pokemon age has dramatically increased, well, let's just say the number of distractions. And it certainly has raised the decibel level of our daily lives. Isn't it amazing that more and more information at higher speeds bombards us? There's this multiplying of voices that constantly clamor for our attention. There are emails and texts and tweets, Facebook friends, and in this political season, oh my, you can't turn on a broadcast tv program without being inundated with the most disgusting political commercials we're constantly bombarded voices come at us from every angle in nanosecond time we hear about everybody's opinion in the democratization of knowledge and information everybody's opinion has a global stage who to vote for how to raise our kids or grandkids What you and I should eat or shouldn't eat. What social cause we must care about today. And in an increasing demography world that is aging, how to prepare for retirement well. In such a noisy and distracted world, I have this sense that perhaps the greatest challenge in our lives is listening well. There's just so much background noise, and it's increasingly difficult to know who or what to listen to, to discern what is trivial and what is truly important. I was reminded of this this past week. I was out of town in a leadership meeting with a partner organization, and a board member offered some important insight, particularly in the area of big data mining, both in nonprofit and profit sectors. tendency is to gather more and more data. And she spoke of the crucial importance to discern what the data points meant and what data points really mattered in any good decision-making. And she made this comment that was so insightful. She said, the most essential skill in today's world is learning to listen through the noise. I think she's right. Listening well matters. The louder the noise, it seems to me, the more difficult it is to listen. The harder to listen, the greater the challenge of hearing through the noise to what is really important. Don't you sense the dripping irony of our times is that in the sense that listening well is more difficult and at the same time it's more crucial. If we don't listen well, we cannot live well. Our text, written over 2,000 years ago, by the brilliant writer Matthew, brings this truth home with a thunderclap thud to our hearts this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17. Now, as a church family, we have been across our campuses exploring Matthew's Gospel. Wow. What a treasure it has been. And we have seen as we progress through it that Matthew, as an eyewitness to Jesus, a follower of Jesus, paints this beautiful and compelling picture of who Jesus is and the truly good life he offers. So here in chapter 17, Matthew continues his literary theme. He recounts a remarkable story (laughs) of an unforgettable moment for three of Jesus' closest followers, Peter, James, and John. Now, as thoughtful readers of the text, as thoughtful listeners this morning, as we enter into this text, I want us first to observe both its literary and logical architecture. Matthew's literary structure is divided into two basic narrative parts. In verses 1 through 8, we join Jesus on the mountain, on the mountain. Then, in verses 9-13, through we walk down with Jesus from the mountain as He continues His mission to the cross. Embedded in this literary structure is the guiding lockdown logic that brings coherence to the unfolding narrative and to the entire gospel. Matthew's logical flow follows a who, then what form. In other words, when we see who Jesus really is, then logically we are compelled to listen to what Jesus says. So these two essential bedrock truths emerge from this text for those of us who long to live life well, to live the good life Jesus offers. So the flow of the message follows this structure. First, we must recognize who Jesus is. And on the heels of that, secondly, we must listen to what Jesus says. If you ever text open, you'll notice that verse 1 opens immediately with a time marker, six days. This is important because the mountaintop experience that we are going to encounter is six days after Jesus makes it very clear to His disciples He is making His way to Jerusalem, not for a coronation, but a crucifixion to suffer and die. This whole literary structure is bookended about Jesus' mission to the cross. Now, what occurs in verse 2 clearly surprises us, doesn't it? It surely startled Peter, James, and John. And when you hear it read or heard it read earlier today, at first glance, doesn't it seem kind of, wow, That seems kind of fanciful. And if you're newer to the Bible, it may seem like all of a sudden you've encountered a first century sci-fi moment. A kind of a Star Wars energy field. At least in my warped imagination. A kind of Star Trek beam me up Scotty moment, right? But this text is presenting just the opposite. It is anything but fanciful or mythical. It is embedded deeply in time, space, history. The eyewitnesses' veracity and historical authenticity scream out to us at every point of the text. Now notice, the gospel writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include the story which reinforces its authenticity and historicity. The gospel writer Luke, who is the detailed historian of the bunch, who checks out every detail with the greatest care, tells us in Luke 10 some more information on his historical texture. We read that the context, as Jesus often did, he goes up to the mountain in his pattern to pray. Luke also tells us, I find this kind of cute and a bit humorous, he points out that Peter, James, and John on the mountain are nodding off. And suddenly, in the midst of that twilight zone of sleep, they are jarred awake by what is taking place near them. Now, I want you to notice something. Because of the extraordinary nature and truth claim of what is unfolding around them, Matthew will very specifically emphasize a multi-sensory experience for all, not one, all three disciples. Matthew is giving us a compelling apologetic of the historicity of this story. He unpacks it, what they saw, what they heard, and what they felt. So what did Peter, James, and John see? What did they hear and what did they feel? First, they saw Jesus' glory. Look at verse 2. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white or dazzling as light. Now, Matthew does not blush with his inspired pen. He describes how the limitations of time and space suddenly vanish. This thin curtain, this fleshly skin of the incarnate Jesus, is quickly pulled back. The clouds of finitude are rolled back as a scroll, and the word transfigured, we Get this, uh, this Greek word has the sense of English of metamorphosis, capturing a sense of instant dramatic change. Matthew describes this change as a sunlight kind of energy. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that one of the images of the manifest presence of God in the tent of meeting is the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God, brilliant light. Not only do Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of Jesus' dazzling divine nature. In verse 3 then, we see Jesus is hanging out with a pretty impressive Old Testament company, isn't he? This is not King David or some other impressive character. This is specifically Elijah and Moses. Why? Well, in the broader redemptive story, Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. All of this points to Jesus, the ultimate prophet, who is more than a prophet, who is the very Son of God. If you wondered what Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking about, wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation? But Luke, way to go, Luke. Luke gives us a little hint of the conversation, enough to whet our eternal appetite, perhaps. Luke tells us in Luke 9 that they are chatting about Jesus' upcoming mission to Jerusalem. And he uses the word in the Greek language, Exodus, which has an Old Testament overtone, right? And when Moses leads God's people from slavery, from bondage, Jesus is going to lead people from the slavery and bondage of sin and death. But in Luke also, in the cross, and Luke also, also forecasts the future glory of Jesus in chapter 9, verse 26, that it is also His second coming of glory that He has in mind. Needless to say, we don't know all that's going on here, but it wasn't trivial. It wasn't, how's the weather today up here on the mountain conversation. Now, seeing Jesus' glory, aren't you just stunned at what comes next? Good old Peter. Peter gets words out of his mouth. How he can do this, I have no idea. Can you imagine the glory of God and his divinity and the Son of God and the brilliant light that's going on that Peter can talk? And what is amazing to notice is that Matthew injects humor here. Peter says to Jesus, can you just imagine this going on? And Peter says, hey, Hey, it's good to be here. <laughs> Think of it like this. Listen, I had the joy last minute because of some cancellations to be at the seventh game of the Royals World Series on their first trek, the home game. Last minute. I haven't shared that before from up here because I didn't want you to be angry or jealous. let <laughs> so it go through that. On no benefit of our own, we found ourselves walking on the fourth row of the stadium as the Star Spangled Banner was played. Fourth row. There's George, Brad, all the who's who, and we're the who's that. Now imagine, imagine me poking George or somebody else there, all the who's, and say, wow, it's good to be here you go, Duh! <laughs> That's what Matthew is saying. It's like, Duh! There is an awkward humor here. And not only, Peter keeps blabbering. He says, I'm going to build three tents. Now, there's all kinds of potential meaning of this in the Old Testament. There was a tent of meeting where Moses met with God and there was a feast of the booze which captured the tent but i don't think there's a lot of old testament illusion here because the context is humor what i think is what i think is going on here is peter is like on this mountaintop experience he's beside himself he's saying this is so cool let's just hang out on this glorious mountain for a while i mean like me jesus moses and elijah yeah fourth row of the World Series, seventh game. (laughs) Peter didn't want it to end. I remember the first time I went to a Christian camp, summer camp. Some of you have done that. I was a young boy and like, I guess, kind of homesick at first. You know, it was hard to go. But the last night we were on the campfire. I had all these new friends. The sky was perfect in northern Minnesota. The Aurora Borealis were sort of shining a little. This was like, I want to go home. I kept thinking, how can I stay another week? Because mountaintop experiences, you never want to end. Think about Peter's experiences with Jesus already in the gospel. Calm in the sea, his supernatural power, his brilliant teaching. But here, for the first time in Peter's life and the gospel, Peter gets a glimpse, not an echo, a glimpse of Jesus' eternal divine glory. If you got that, if I got that, you would never want it to end too. He wants to put up some tents and hang out. And isn't it amazing that Peter keeps talking? And talking, the text is very explicit about this. There is something really funny going on. You can laugh in this text. And that is not only funny, he keeps talking and blabbering, blabbering. God the Father himself interrupts Peter. Is that amazing? The text is very explicit. Mindless blabbering on and on, and all of a sudden, God the Father's had it with Peter. Look at verse 5. I'm not embellishing the text, he, Peter, while still speaking, that's the grammar, while still speaking, ongoing, talking, 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 when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son and who I'm well pleased, listen to him, basically saying, Peter, shut up, listen to Jesus. Can you imagine God the Father giving Jesus a whopping endorsement like this? Peter, James and John not only see with their own eyes Jesus' divine glory, glory, they now hear with their very own ears Jesus' divine endorsement. Now if you've been with us and studied the book of Matthew, you know that,, hmm, I think I've heard that before. You have. Because this divine endorsement was given in Matthew chapter three, and Jesus' baptism, the launching of his public itinerant ministry as a rabbi. Exact same words. Perfectly exact, But here it is given again to His disciples so that they are ready to go on mission with Jesus to the cross. See, endorsements are big deals in life, aren't they? They matter. A strong endorsement from a re- on a resume can make the difference in our lives between getting into a particular college or receiving a scholarship or landing a good job. See, we all know it's not just what we know, but who you know and what others say about you that matters. Think about this. A coveted big-name endorsement can help make an obscure author a bestseller. Think Oprah. Or an indie film can become a blockbuster film. Or the right political endorsement can mean the difference between winning and losing. See, the high value of an endorsement is not only about what is said, but mostly about who says them. Now, don't miss this. In the chapter before, Jesus is given an endorsement by Peter. You are the son of the living God. Amazing. But the big endorsement comes in chapter 17, when God the Father endorses Jesus. You are my my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You can't get any bigger endorsement than that. See, in recognizing who Jesus really is, Peter, James, and John see Jesus' divine glory. They hear his divine endorsement, but do not miss the next thing. They also feel Jesus' divine and tender touch. When that thundercloud, when that voice comes from the cloud... Peter, James, and John hit the deck. They are scared spitless beyond belief. And you and I would be too. Yet in verse 7, do you see it? We see Jesus' tenderness. Jesus comes to them, he touches them, he speaks to them, and he calms their fears. And Matthew says, Then Jesus' company on the mountain vanishes from the disciples' eyes. Think about it for a moment. Jesus, the powerful and divine God, Lord and Savior, displays that he is also truly the good and kind and gentle shepherd. Peter, James, and John are spoken to and touched. They hear his voice. And Jesus' voice alone removes fear and infuses hope in our lives. See, we not only live in a noisy, distracted world, Isn't it true we live in an increasing fearful world? A confusing world? As a kid, I remember playing the blindfold obstacle course game. You ever played that with your friends? You're part of a team and then someone puts a blindfold on you and then you have to navigate an obstacle course and you can't do it. You only have to listen to everybody else's voice guiding you. Many of us feel just like that in life in the world we live in, a world that seems to be upside down, with massive obstacles and many voices shouting at us. We feel blindfolded, clueless at times, often fearful. There are so many voices shouting out there, so many distractions, we don't know what to believe or who to trust, both on a global level and local level. We have been reminded again this week, haven't we? The horrendous terrorist attack in France, evil's hideous presence in the world, Not too long ago, I was at LAX early in the morning. I never used to think about anything when I was at an airport. And I had this eerie sense of fear. We not only encounter global fears, we face very many, many personal ones, don't we? Financial fears, a recent doctor's visit, surfacing fear in your life this morning. You may feel the fear of what your children are facing or will face or your grandchildren, what lies ahead of you at work this week, fears of being alone, the fears of the future. Here in Matthew chapter 17, we remind that Jesus' voice is like another voice. In the midst of all the noise of our lives, Matthew is reminding us that Jesus' voice is the one we need to hear most right now in our lives, and in our world. Yet many of us are allowing ourselves to be continually bombarded by the voices of broadcast or cable media or social media or the internet, much more than listening to the voice of Holy Scripture. Only Jesus' voice truly removes fear. And only Jesus' voice brings peace. It transcends transcends ominous circumstances. His continual presence with us and his constant provision for us as our good shepherd is the voice we need to listen to most. The level of our fear is often tied, isn't it, to the voice or voices we are listening to most. Listening to Jesus' voice is the voice that matters most. As Matthew 17 continues, Matthew wraps up the story, doesn't he? In verses 9 to 13, he describes Jesus coming down from the mountain with Peter, James, and John. They're focusing on their journey ahead to the cross and his resurrection. Aren't you just struck in heart and mind how resolute Jesus is coming down from that mountain and staying on mission? Can you you just imagine, can I just imagine for a moment how much Jesus must have wanted to stay on that glorious mountain? Having left the triune throne of God, Jesus must have been homesick for heaven at that moment in a way none of us could ever, ever fathom. He must have longed to leave this sin-stained world behind and dwell fully in the midst of the sinless, glorious triune Godhead how he must have seen the cross from that mountain and wanted to avoid that terrible humiliation. And later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will sweat tears of blood as he contemplates the Father having to turn his back on him. It's hard to even begin to comprehend the searing and crushing weight of sin on Jesus' sinless frame. But somehow love for me and you and this broken world compelled him to come down from that mountain to the valley of the shadow of death, to death on a cross. Peter and John and James look back on this unforgettable moment on the mountain of transfiguration as the immovable and sure anchor of their faith. They cannot help but speak of it in terms of what they saw with their eyes, they heard with their ears, and they touched with their hands in their inspired writings of Scripture. Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. In 2 uh, Peter chapter 1, listen to the sensory language. For we did not follow clearly devised myths when we were made known to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. John begins his first epistle describing Jesus for who he is, the eternal logos, the eternal life. He says, that which was from the beginning, notice, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Concerning the eternal Logos, the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John begins his gospel with an implicit allusion to this uh, transfiguration moment. Notice in cha- chapter 1, verse 14, when he describes the incarnation, he says, and the word, that's Jesus, the Logos became flesh and dwelt. Literally, he uses the word tent. It tented among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Please understand that the New Testament writers like Matthew, John, and Peter want us to anchor our faith in Jesus like they did not upon some mythical wish dream of a human imagination, but upon the sure and historical realities that they encountered played out in time and space. If you are considering the Christian faith or unsure about the Christian faith, its uniqueness is profound and it is deeply embedded in time-space history. Gospel writers don't blush when they communicate that. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. They saw his glory. They heard the voice with their own ears, they touched him. And later they would see the glorified, nail-scarred resurrection body, and Thomas would declare what all of them knew beyond a doubt and beyond words, what they felt. My Lord and my God. See, when we see who Jesus is, the inescapable logic to our lives is we listen to what he says. I want you to notice in this description, in these first eight verses, there is only one imperative. All the rest is description. Imperatives bring prescription, not description. An imperative verb is found at the end of verse five. The hinge of the text is here. The hinge of the gospel is here. It's an imperative call for action, for response. And the imperative in the text, in bold letters, is listen to him. Listen to him. What does the text mean when it says, listen to Jesus? In our cultural context, listening is often separated from doing, but in the biblical context, there is no separation. It's a seamless way of knowing. To listen and not apply with a fitting and appropriate logical response is not to listen at all. Jesus will finish his great sermon on the mount with a parable about a wise and foolish builder. And in a parable, if you remember, we are reminded of the peril of hearing what Jesus taught, yet not acting on it, not truly listening. The parable of Jesus' most brilliant sermon ever recorded leads to us listening. Jesus is making the point that to truly hear is to actually do, and to actually do is to truly hear, and to know and not do is to not know at all. It is the gravest sense of self-deception. John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus unpacks the essential dynamic reality of listening and its connection to intimacy. I do not want you to miss this. Listen carefully. Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be love of my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. What is Jesus saying? Are we truly listening? Here's what he's saying. When we truly listen, we truly learn. And when we truly learn, we truly obey. And when we truly obey, we truly love. And when we truly love, we intimately know. The more we truly listen to him, the more we learn. The more we learn, the more we obey. The more we obey, the more we love him. The more we love him, the deeper and more intimate we know him. Henry Nowen, in his wonderful little book, The Inner Voice of Love, captures this beautifully. He says, Everything Jesus is saying to you can be summarized in the words. Know you are welcome. Then he says, Jesus offers you his most intimate life with the Father. He wants you to know all he knows and to do all he listening to jesus leads to intimacy with jesus we know that's true in human relationships don't we whether it's friends a spouse or children we know that listening with head and heart leads to relational intimacy we all know the ache don't we when a close friend or spouse is selective or distracted or defensive in their listening how do we feel we feel devalued rejected and misunderstood We know if we don't listen well in a relationship, we cannot live well in the relationship. We know we cannot know them well. We cannot love them well. We cannot serve them well. And we cannot hope well. We cannot live well unless we listen well. That's true in our relationship with one another. It's true in our relationship with God. If we don't listen well to Jesus, we cannot live well for Him. So the question in the text is, are you listening well? Let me suggest three reminders to tuck into our hearts this morning. First, we need to lower the noise in our life. This week, I would encourage you to honestly evaluate how much time, like a mapping, like an inventory, you are spending being plugged into the internet, social media, broadcast and cable news, whatever it is. How much time are you spending on your smartphone? If you are like me, I get so attached to that thing on my day off, I have to put it in a drawer so I don't watch it, so I grab it. One of the most important kinds of fasting for the Christian today is a regular media fast. Because if we do not have that discipline, the voice of Jesus is crowded out in our lives. All the information technology we have at our fingertips can enhance our lives. In many ways, it's a gift, but it also can be a curse and enslave us. Lower the noise so you can hear His voice. Secondly, take the initiative to learn. Take the initiative. We must be more intentional to listen to his voice and do what he says and find hope in what he says. So, when you evaluate your daily diet or weekly diet of information, let me ask you a question How much is coming from the broader world and how much is coming from God's inspired word? Are you listening through the noise? Are you disciplining your life to spend time alone in God's Word and prayer? One of the gifts of technology is that we can have our hearts and minds filled with Scripture in amazing ways, right? Are you filling your mind with trivia or truth? There are many wonderful reading apps, Bible reading apps. We have open here at Christ Community. One of the things I love most is Pandora for me, where I can put on beautiful hymns or praise songs and music as a backdrop to my life. See, technology can serve us. And when Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within, us, dwell within us, we have amazing opportunities to do that through technology. So, what intentional steps are you taking to see this in your life? Lower the noise. Take the initiative to learn what God is doing in your life, in others' lives, in the world around us. God is speaking through many avenues. The question is are we hearing Him and are we listening? And last, be attentive to what God is doing. Be attentive. There are many challenges in following Jesus, I know. I wrestle with them too. Challenges to live this good life Jesus has for us. But I want to suggest that perhaps in my life, in your life, particularly in our time, that inattentiveness is the most perilous to your soul and to your relationships. The Attentive Life is a remarkable book that Leighton Ford wrote. And if you have a summer read, I want to encourage you to read this. And in the book, he says something so important. And listen carefully. Everybody, hear me. He says, "Inattention is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life. Inattention. See, in a noisy world, overextended schedules, we all struggle with cluttered minds, distracted hearts. We need to work very specifically about growing in attentiveness. God is very much at work in our world. He's at work around us. He's his still vo- small voices within us. But are we attentive to it?" Are we seeing his glory? Are we hearing his voice? Are we feeling his touch? Let's lower the noise. As I bang my... Sorry. Let's take the initiative. Let's be attentive. From the mount of transfiguration, may we freshly hear God's voice to us. This is my beloved son in who I'm well pleased. Listen to him. If we don't listen well to him, we cannot live well with him and for him. Let's pray.